Please remain standing and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 14. This will be our Old Testament reading. I'm going through some of the dietary laws being summarized here in Deuteronomy after they're given a greater length in Leviticus. Not only the laws themselves, but also the reason is given. So listen, see if you can hear the reason that is given for these dietary laws near the end of this passage. Deuteronomy 14. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the foot cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters you may eat these, whatever has fins and scales you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat, it is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat, and all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean-winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that is dyed naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns, that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 10. Going to read the first half of this chapter, the story of Peter and the centurion Cornelius, the inclusion of the Gentiles. <clears throat> Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now... Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. 
He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin, I'd like you to get in your imagination the picture of a wall and the picture of a bridge. Now, this is a pretty, pretty well-worn word picture, and you've probably heard it before uh, in some other context. <clears throat> uh, but I think it's a pretty good one, so I'm going to use it. Um, so you've got your wall, and you've got your bridge in your mind. Now, what does a wall do? A wall uh, separates things, right? It, it keeps these people in and those people out. It divides the inside of the building, with like the pews and the light fixtures and air conditioning, which is nice, um, from the outdoors, with the grass and the sunshine and the critters. And so walls are good, right? Walls are important, um, and they have uh, very vital uses. Now let's think about bridges for a second. So what do bridges do? A bridge is something that connects people, right? Um, It lets those people over there get across to these people over here. It brings together two places that otherwise would be inaccessible to each other, right? And now let's ask one more question. Which one is is easier to build, a bridge or a wall? I think you'd have to say a a wall is easier. Generally, it's more complicated and difficult and costly to build a bridge than it is to build a wall. 
All right, so like I said, a lot of people like to use this word picture. And at this point, you'll often hear people say, okay, so let's make sure that in our lives we're working to build bridges with people instead of building walls that divide people. Be people who build bridges, not walls. And you can imagine how, depending on the context, that could lead to some very good advice. Uh, It could also lead to some very bad advice, uh, depending on what kinds of walls and what kinds of bridges we're talking about building or tearing down and so on. And that's why today, rather than focusing, first of all, on the bridges and walls that we build, I want to focus on something else, or really someone else. Because the person you really see building bridges in this passage is not Peter, it's not Cornelius. In a lot of ways, this passage is happening to them, as they have no idea what's going on. And, but someone else does, is directing these events. The person you really see building bridges here is the Lord. And in fact, I'd like us to see together three different kinds of bridges that the Lord builds in this passage, starting with a personal bridge in verses 1 through 8. Second is going to be a theological bridge in verses 9 to 16. And then third, a practical bridge, verses 17 to 23. So a personal, building a personal bridge, building a theological bridge, and building a practical bridge. We want to see the Lord as the bridge builder in all of these ways. Okay, so first let's see how the Lord builds a personal bridge. Um, And that personal bridge that I'm talking about is actually Cornelius himself. Cornelius himself. I got this thought from a commentator named Ben Witherington who describes Cornelius as a bridge figure between the mainly Jewish church that's now flourishing in Judea and Samaria and then the vast future mission fields out there of Asia and Europe where um, the Apostle Paul and others are going to be Um, reaching with the gospel for most of the rest of the book of Acts. You remember from last time that Acts chapters 9 through 12 is a major turning point in the flow of the whole book of Acts as the gospel is about to start going outward from the land and the people of Israel to all the nations of the world, to the ends of the earth, including um, the imperial capital, Rome. And so starting then at the beginning of chapter 9... Uh, Luke zoomed in on Saul and his conversion on the road to Damascus. You may think, well, how is that related to this extension of the gospel to the Gentiles? Well, it's because what is Paul's mission going to, to be? Jesus explains to Ananias that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So all the way back at the chap- uh, beginning of chapter 9, um, this transition is already beginning. So the Lord is preparing the servant who's going to be the leader of that mission to the Gentiles. We have to remember at this point is that up until now, the church of Christ has consisted almost exclusively of people who started out from Jewish backgrounds. Um, now, we could add to that there are also the Samaritans. That happened in chapter 8, you remember, um, uh, who, want, who would, wanted to, they would have wanted to distinguish themselves from Jews, and vice versa, the Jews would have wanted to distinguish themselves from Samaritans. And so the Samaritans are kind of in that third concentric circle from Jesus' commission in chapter 1. Remember, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. But still, even the Samaritans had some kind of, of ethnic and historical and religious connection with Judaism. They were kind of first cousins, you might, you might say. But now, now the Lord is preparing the way for the message of Jesus to start going to places 
with no relationship to Israel at all uh, in terms of ethnicity or culture or religion. Places like Corinth or, or Ephesus or Philippi. And, and it's not just going to go to the Jewish people who happen to be living uh, dispersed in those cities. It's going to be going to rank pagans who have never had any kind of connection with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet they're going to be given the opportunity to become followers of Jesus. And so the question is, how do we get from here to there? How is that gap going to be bridged between an exclusively Jewish and Samaritan church and a Gentile new contention that's going to be gathered in? The Jews, um, even those Jews who had now become Christians, were part of a culture, a way of thinking that drew very bright lines between themselves and Gentiles, insiders and outsiders. There were very high walls, kind of metaphorically, between the holy nation of Israel and the pagan world outside. So this is going to be a hard transition, a hard thing for the church to adjust to. So what does the Lord do? The Lord builds a bridge. And that bridge is Cornelius, because at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, verse 1 says. And we can stop right there. Uh, Cornelius is a Gentile, but he's living within the territory of Israel. Um, And so, uh, like Joppa, which is uh, about 35 miles um, south of Caesarea, Caesarea also is right on the Mediterranean coast, uh, but it's still in the territory of Israel. Um, in fact, during this time, Caesarea was the Roman, um, they call it administrative capital of Judea, of that Roman province. Uh, and you can think it's just like today, the political capital of the nation of Israel today is not Jerusalem, it's Tel Aviv, right? And so something was similar going on here. Um, and so it makes sense that Caesarea is a place that you would find a lot of Roman soldiers, like Cornelius who was a centurion, it says, of what was known as the Italian cohort. So uh, he would have been in charge of somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 men, not a super high-ranking officer like a general or a colonel, but um, also he's not just one of the rank and file either. And you can see he has these household servants and, and so on. And so this is the first way that Cornelius serves as a bridge to the Gentile world. When, when he becomes a Christian, um, he is living in the land of Israel geographically. But there's another way he serves as a bridge, And that is that he starts out already with a very close relationship to the faith of Israel. He's not actually a a full proselyte. In other words, he hasn't um, made the leap of of becoming a Jew um, by being circumcised, for instance, and and fully diving into Jewish uh, identity. But it does say that he was a devout man who feared God, the one true God, the God of Israel, with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And so what you can see here is the wisdom and the patience of the Lord, his willingness to to help the church patiently and and, and gradually to help the church to come to terms with this great sea change that is about to take place in the makeup of the covenant community. By bringing in this Gentile in his household, yes, but but a Gentile who was about as close to Judaism as you could get without actually becoming a Jew. And so this angel comes to Cornelius in a vision, and he calls his name, and he says, Cornelius, your, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial uh, before God. 
and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. Um, Now, I hope you won't think I'm beating a dead horse when I say, uh, who is the main person working here? Who's the, again, the main character of the book of Acts? And I, I know that I have said this in pretty much every sermon, and it's because it's one of the great themes of the book of Acts. Who is the one getting things done here, directing the course of events, bringing about the outcome of this chapter? Is it Peter? No. Is it Cornelius? No. It is the Lord Jesus, the risen and ascended and reigning Lord Jesus in heaven. It's Christ throughout this book who is acting from heaven to build his church his way. And it's nowhere clearer than here as he is acting directly and supernaturally in a way that never would have happened in the ordinary course of things. Daryl Bach and his commentator points out that there's a clear parallel between chapter 9 and chapter 10, the conversion of Saul and the conversion of Cornelius, which is something we might, we might easily miss. Um, <clears throat> you think that was not Saul's doing, of course, on the road to Damascus. No, it was a It is an intrusion, a direct supernatural intervention of the Lord Jesus into history, into Saul's life, to drastically change the course of his life, to wrench him out of the pathway of rebellion and persecution that he was bent on, and to move him into a different path um, to prepare him for his lifelong mission to the Gentiles. And now how does the conversion of Cornelius come, come about? Well, it happens the same way. We think, well, there's a, there's a big difference between Cornelius and, and Paul. Cornelius is a devout man. He's already serving the Lord. And yet still, his uh, inclusion in the church still comes, out, comes about through a supernatural intervention of the Lord Jesus. Uh, not just with him, but with Peter as well. Uh, just like with Saul and Ananias, the Lord Jesus appears to both of them, right? And brings them together in Damascus. Well, here in chapter 10... The Lord reaches down to Cornelius over here, and he reaches down to Peter over here, and he lifts them up and brings them together in the middle and says, you need to meet with one another so that I can bring the gospel to the household of this Gentile family. As a supernatural act of the grace of Christ to advance the church's mission by his almighty power to the next stage of his plan that that none of the characters on earth had in mind. If everybody had just been left to do what came naturally, the inclusion of the Gentiles would never have taken place. But it did. And why is that? It was because God built this bridge. But that's not the only bridge the Lord is going to have to build in order to make this work. Cornelius himself is a bridge, a personal bridge, between those Jewish and Gentile worlds. But he's still a Gentile. He's still an outsider from the Jewish point of view, and so as nice as he might be and as as sympathetic as he might be with um, our faith and as generous as he might be to our people, he's still not one of us. That's the way a Jewish Christian would naturally be inclined to think. And so there's not just the personal, geographical, social gap that needs to be bridged. There is also a theological gap, a theological gap in understanding. How can... Jewish Christians be expected to embrace Gentile converts into the church if all of their theological instincts tell them 
that the covenant community is for Jews only. And so in Peter's case, what the Lord does is he builds a theological bridge for Peter. A bridge between the testaments, between the covenants. He shows Peter, using the Old Testament imagery of the law, how the Lord is about to advance his salvation plan through a new movement in the proclamation of the gospel. And so once again, the Lord takes the initiative here. It's the Lord who's sovereignly working here as he gives Peter this, this vision to complement Cornelius' vision. And he spreads out on a sheet all these possible animals for Peter to eat. And he's, he's very hungry, so he has food on, on his mind and on his stomach. No food on his stomach. If he's thinking about food. And uh, there's people preparing for him a meal downstairs, but up here on the roof, the Lord is spreading a meal for him. The problem, of course, is that many of the animals in this vision are ceremonially unclean animals. And so when the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat, Peter thinks, wait a second. He's kind of on his guard. I can't be right. One writer says, you can almost imagine him thinking, is, is, this, a, is this maybe a test? Is the Lord testing me? But that's not what the Lord is doing. The Lord is wanting Peter to reflect about those Old Testament ceremonial cleanliness laws. Think, why? Why are those laws there in the Old Testament, in Moses? All of those unclean animals that you've been taught all of your life not to eat, why are they unclean for you? Well, it's because the law says they're unclean, right? But where do those laws come from? Think about this, Peter. Did God call those animals unclean because there was something in those animals that was bad? Um, because he had to. There's something objectively unclean about them, and the Lord is like, oh, I guess I better tell the people not to eat them. No, that was never the point of those cleanliness laws. God set up all of those distinctions between clean and unclean to picture for his people a, a deeper reality. And we saw that in Deuteronomy, what it meant for Israel to be holy, for them to be separate, for them to be different from the world around them, from the surrounding nations and their practices and their identities. So the cleanliness laws then, then pictured that holiness, that separateness, that distinctness. But are those holiness laws, are those cleanliness laws what made Israel holy and separate and different? See, as long as you think we are going to become holy by keeping these cleanliness laws, you've got it backwards. Because what makes Israel holy and separate and different is not their keeping the law, it's their relationship to the Lord. And God set up the laws about clean and unclean foods to teach, to illustrate to Israel that deeper reality and to have them internalize it by living it out in their routines of daily life. And because those are pictures set up by God to teach Israel a lesson then, for that time in history, if God set up those rules in the first place, then he has the sovereign authority to change them in order to teach his people a new lesson about other things that have now changed historically. And so the point for Peter is, Peter, I, I wouldn't have told you to eat these things if they were unclean. In fact, how can you know for sure that these animals are not unclean for you? Well, it's because I've just told you to eat them. 
Rise, Peter, kill and eat. It's because I've commanded you that you can know they're no longer unclean for you. And if I've told you to eat them, then don't you go calling them unclean as though you can insist on keeping to those old rules when I'm telling you that they've changed. Now, interesting, I think, that the Lord doesn't explain right away why he's giving Peter this vision. He talks about how Peter's kind of perplexed by this, okay? Why in the world did God just give me this vision about the, clean, uh, of the unclean animals? It's going to dawn on him gradually as events continue to unfold. The Lord doesn't say, listen, Peter, I'm, and the moral of the story is I'm about to go send you on a mission to preach the gospel to some Gentiles. No, first what he wants to do is he wants to address Peter's heart. He wants to address Peter's imagination. You almost might say his worldview, his way of thinking about his identity and his relationship to the law of Moses. What does Peter think defines him as one of the people of God? What defines him as a member of the community of faith? Um, And it's possible that up until this point, Peter still tended to think instinctively of his place in the world in terms of the ceremonial walls that separated Old Testament Israel from the rest of the world. What the Lord is showing him is, Peter, those old walls I am now breaking down. They served their purpose for a time, but they were never essential to what makes Israel Israel. They were shadows, they were pictures that are now going away. They're being traded for the real thing. The real thing is now here. It's Jesus who has come. And and so now whether you're in or out of the community of God's people is no longer going to be measured by what you eat or any other kind of outward conformity to some kind of ceremonial uh, ritual. It's going to be measured by your relationship to Jesus Christ. See, See the... God is building a bridge for Peter between the Testaments, between the covenants, between the ages of what we call redemptive history, the history of God's saving work, between the times of pictures and shadows and the time of fulfillment that has now come in Jesus. There's still one more bridge left to build. Maybe... Peter could be brought to make that connection intellectually, theologically. Okay, the Lord straightened out my theology now. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled. I get that. It served its purpose. It's gone now because of the coming of Christ. We don't get Peter explicitly saying that, but we're thinking the steps along the way here. Um, But there are still, even if he's got that intellectually straight, there are still those instincts those visceral, deeply ingrained habits of thinking, everything in Peter's upbringing, everything in his way of looking at the world that said, but, 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 I'm a Jew, and, and they're Gentiles, and never the twain shall meet. And so the final bridge that God builds for Peter is a practical bridge, a bridge between theory and practice. A bridge between doctrine and life. I love where verse 17 says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, 
And, and I've already explained to you a lot more of the meaning of this vision than Peter understood yet. He was just completely disoriented by it so far. But you see what God is doing providentially here. He's, what he's been doing is preparing Peter for a particular action that he wants him to take, a particular mission or something God wants him to do. The vision is laying the groundwork for the mission. And so in God's just exquisite timing, the answer literally comes knocking at the door downstairs just at the moment that Peter is wondering, what in the world did that just mean? And here comes the answer. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask where Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And so the Lord is providing the answer for Peter. Listen, just like I was sovereign over those foods that I told you to eat, I'm sovereign over every other barrier that separates you from uh, non-Israelites. And so the, the Spirit says to Peter, Behold, there's three men looking for you now, and I want you to rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them, just like I cleansed those foods for you and told you to eat them. I want you to obey this command now, because this is what it was all about. When those men ask you to go, you go. Don't feel like you're somehow compromising your holiness by associating with them. Because in fact, what is about to happen is the exact opposite. Peter, you're not going to be compromising your holiness as part of the covenant community. What's happening when you go with them is you're going to be spreading the holiness that comes through Christ. The the holiness of Israel, you see, is, is working its way outwards from Israel toward the nations through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, the holiness that comes through faith in Jesus and through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who is going to be remarkably, astonishingly poured out on these Gentile believers next time. Next time. And I love verse 23 when Peter begins to cross that bridge. He sets his foot on it and starts walking across when it says, so he invited them in to be his guests. That bridge has been built between theory and practice. And Peter is taking the step of faith. The coming together of Jew and Gentile has begun. And the next time we're going to see it completed. But for now, I want to just reflect for a little while on these bridges that God was building. One more time as we close. God is indeed the great bridge builder. And we can see that most clearly of all, in the Lord Jesus himself, the ultimate bridge between God and man, right? Peter and Cornelius, after all, both, one was a Jew and one was a Gentile, but they both shared the same basic problem. Both of them were sinners. Both of them were separated from God by nature because of their rebellion against his rule, their disobedience to his law, And that meant that Peter and Cornelius, as different as their backgrounds were ethnically and in so many other ways, ultimately they shared the same need, the need for a bridge between themselves and the Lord. They needed someone to span that vast, impossible distance between a holy God and a sinful people. That's a distance they can never bridge by working their way up to the Lord. But it's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did by becoming man 
taking upon himself their nature and our nature and living and dying on the cross for sinners and rising from the dead and then doing what? And then ascending back into heaven, completing that bridge between God and man as he now sits at the Father's right hand and intercedes for us and brings us to God. So as we set our minds on things that are above, we're being brought up to where Christ is with God. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Bridge the gap. See, Christ, that's not all Christ did. He didn't just build a bridge between us and God. He also builds other bridges, doesn't he? He builds bridges on the horizontal level between people who, apart from him, would naturally have nothing to do with one another. This is what Ephesians 2 says. It says, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Think of the cleanliness laws, for example. That he might create in himself, in he himself is this bridge breaking down that wall, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility between God and sinners, and the hostility between sinners and one another. Paul speaking there is Acts 10 is speaking primarily about Jews and Gentiles, of course, and that's the great epic-making transition in the history of salvation that's coming out here, the bringing together of Jews and non-Jews. But there's an extended application here. Christ's reconciling work extends beyond that as well. It really extends to all kinds of relationships among God's people that are naturally broken and distorted and torn apart by sin, by history, by cultural differences, by all kinds of things that naturally keep people apart. Because Christ is the bridge builder. And it's not just that he's the bridge builder, it's that Christ himself is the bridge that brings us together and keeps us together as the body is knit together in him. I mix metaphors a little bit. I, I said at the beginning that this whole walls versus bridges metaphor is pretty well-worn. And there are a lot of people out there who will tell you, listen, listen, guys, you, you, the church needs to be less about building walls and more about building bridges. And to that, I say amen if we're talking about the kinds of bridges that Christ came to build. I don't want to throw wall building out the window. There's a whole book of the Bible about God's people being commanded to build a wall. It's the book of Nehemiah. And similarly, there are aspects where God calls us to build the church as, as a fortress, a citadel of the truth, to defend the truth and defend God's people against wolves and arrow and all kinds of things. But this call to build bridges is a very important aspect of the calling of God's people. How were Peter and Cornelius, Jew and Gentile, going to be brought together in God's plan? It was going to be through Christ. And the same thing is true today. And so as we go from here in service to Christ as his people, I want to call us together to be bridge-building people in union with the great bridge-builder and the great bridge, the Lord Jesus. 
and to be thinking as we go about our lives, as we interact with people who are different from us and who are far from Christ, perhaps, perhaps very far, perhaps hostile to him, to to have our mindset be, how can I help through my life, my words, my actions, how can I help people to get from there to here? Not just to shout the truth at them or not just to ignore them and think, well, those those are two alternatives, right? Either just shouting the truth but not not really helping them to bridge the gap or just ignoring and not being interested in helping them bridge the gap at all. How can God use me, we should be asking, to help people to find their way through faith in Christ to being embraced and included in the family of God who right now are very far away from him? How can God use me as part of that to build theological bridges for people. And this is very important. Again, not just shouting our theology at people, but to help people to think creatively. How do we help to move people from their current frame of reference to a new one, a true one, the the true one that God is holding out to them in Christ? And then finally, I hope that God will use this passage to help us to build a practical bridge in our own hearts, to take what we know about the reconciling work of Christ And to go put it into action by bringing people along with us to the great bridge builder, the Lord Jesus. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that um, you have bridged the gap between um, your holiness and our sinfulness by giving us the Lord Jesus to die for us rise from the dead and to bring us to you. And Lord, we thank you for this um, sovereign, supernatural work that you did to bring together uh, this very unlikely combination of people, Jew and Gentile, Peter and Cornelius, and um, for doing what would never have happened naturally. Lord, we pray that you would continue this work in our midst, that you would help us to be bridge-building people, Um, in your hands, instruments in your hands to bring to Christ those who are far from him. To do this with humility, recognizing that we ourselves are by nature far from you and have only been brought near through the grace of Christ. Lord, send us out, we pray, to build those bridges and to put these things into practice, not just to think about them in our minds. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.